Hello, everyone. This is your Badger Herald podcast host, Ken. I hope you enjoy this episode and our conversation. Today, we have Harvey Clay, a former UW student and student athlete who participated in the 1969 student strike, and Juliana Bennett, a current UW student and the co founder of the UW BIPOC Coalition, to talk about their experiences as African American college students. As one way to commemorate the Black history. Harvey, Juliana, welcome to the show. Can you please briefly introduce yourselves and answer the question that、uh, what does Black History Month mean to you?、Uh, Harvey Clay. I'm 71 years old. I'm、uh, a big old rambling guy from West Texas, Midland, Texas. And Black History Month, unfortunately, is part of American history. Is not normally recorded and shared among everybody. So, Black History Month allowed it to be highlighted to try to fill in some of the deficits. But of course, if you're only getting one twelfth of a period of time to try to make up the history that's been altered and omitted, you almost never catch up. It's a time for us to accent. Our young people. There's no Black history taught in their high schools and elementary schools except at one time a year. So we can try to get some history shared among everybody, not just Black students, but everybody. So the perspective on who we are changes, rather than the perspective that you see on the news and the limited time that we see. In movie theaters and podcasts. Thank you very much, Harvey.、Uh, Juliana, would you please introduce yourself to our audience?、Um, Harvey, you're not going to get、um, rid of me saying this, but I'm really excited to be here with you. I'm Juliana. I use she/her pronouns、um, from the class of 2022. Black History Month to me really means just. Remembering family and remembering everything that we went through to be here, like Harvey said, much of our history is not recorded. In my family, that history has been passed down through storytelling. So it's really meaningful. Where、um, my great aunt、um, last year actually told me the history about my family, how we came, that we were descendants from enslaved people, and like actually. Once we had our freedom, we had forty acres and a mule. And from Mississippi, where like because of just racism, we went to Kentucky, and that's how my family migrated. Then later to Chicago for new opportunities. For me, it's really an honor to know my history, and it's something that many Black people don't have. But it's also something to commemorate our resilience and our ability to. Rise above, and like you know, Black history is not just suffering. We're also able to experience joy. We're also able to be innovators. So, Black History Month really means being able to celebrate all of the accomplishments that we've been able to make. Thank you, Harvey. I know that you were a UW student when you participated in the 1969、uh, strike. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to go to the strike and how 
How is that different or similar to the Black Lives Matter movement today, especially the ones we had uh, over the summer of 2020? Well, you know, I told you I came from Texas. And just to give you a little background history, my dad was born in 1901. And he was born to the progenitor who was actually assigned to impregnate the slave to make bigger, stronger slaves. And he lost his eye when he was around 17, 18 years old for reckless eyeballing for making direct contact with a white woman. And he told us a story about washing his face in a horse trough. And he said, did you know your eyeballs too, it's as long? What? Yeah, so when he was washing his face in a horse trough, he could see his eyeball hanging out from from being beat by the mob, shot, firecracker or something, he doesn't know what. But that gives me a baseline of something for me to work from to examine you know, who we are and what we do. When I learned some of those things, I got to University of Wisconsin, which I thought was going to be the land of the free and milk and honey, and you wouldn't have racism anymore, and you didn't have to get chased by horses and rocks thrown at you, and five or six guys, white guys jumping on you, beating you. I thought we was going to be a, just a wonderful, incredible place. And it certainly could have been, except the cultural shock was overwhelming to me. I did not know we were going to have the same kind of food. We weren't going to have a club. We weren't going to hear the same kind of music all the time. So that was a shocker. And then you look at the gentle Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who I didn't support his philosophy because he was too sweet. He was a nice man. But I would always fight. I'm a Texan, so we grew up fighting like cowboys for fun. And I said, if they're going to abuse this man, if he doesn't have a word to change people's hearts, and just doing a peaceful protest, marching and just having a bunch of girls around me, and seeing a bunch of guys, some of them my teammates, run through the line knocking girls down. So I started to defend them, and the police are behind me with riot gear, and they attacked me. Crack my head open, beat the stew out of me. And I'm telling you, innocent, hadn't done anything to provoke anybody. No kind of provocateur was in my heart at that time. So I said, well, hell, if it's going to be a fight, we got to fight. We got to change this. This isn't right. And people were going to jail and people getting roughed up. You know, it got worse and worse. And they killed a kid at Kent State, tanks on campus and the National Guard. And we were the target. I learned a little bit about the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, and the way they operated and what they did, and that the Black Panther Party was doing free breakfast and medical clinics and education, and they became public enemy number one. And I just said, well, it's a fight. I'm not one to run from a fight. I'm still fighting today. I fight today, uh, you know, trying to find out how to get to some base of equality. And a lot of white people have asked me, well, what do y'all want? We want to be able to have access, get a decent job, get good education, take care of our families, raise our children and grandchildren without the fear of them getting killed so quickly and easily, getting the proper medical care, getting rid of food desert, getting rid of the medical deserts, getting rid of the things and impediments to normal health and well-being for anybody. And then you spread it across the world and you come back. No matter how hard you fight in wars, et cetera, equality still 
has not gotten to the point of being real in the United States of America. All the programs, all the money spent, all of that was intended to blend us into a substandard society for African-American people. Because they want somebody to do the labor work. They want somebody to continue to build the houses, somebody to dig up the ground, somebody to take care of their babies. So it's just not fair. How could I not fight? Hearing your experiences and and your thoughts on this, I feel like, you know, you have addressed, you know, the struggles have been the same for equality, for access to a lot of basic things like education, healthcare. You know, it's a lot like the BLM movement happened over the summer. So, Juliana, uh, hearing Harvey's experiences during the civil rights movement, how are his experiences different from or similar to your own experiences at the university in terms of student activism? You know, it's really sad because as I was listening to Harvey, I heard like the same story <laughs> that we've been experiencing today, except a different era. <laughs> talking about like coming here and experiencing culture shock. That's literally what I've experienced, what my black friends have experienced coming here to UW. You said like, you know, there's, you don't have any clubs, any music, any food that's, you know, for people of color. And it's ingrained in the soul of Madison. There were clubs that like played um, hip hop music, but they were like banned in Madison. And this was only a, f- a few years ago. So we still don't have a place here at this university. It's absolutely infuriating how you can look at like, you know, what you experience with protesting and the cops being just brutal to now where many of the people on the streets, many of the people on the streets for the BLM movement this summer and now are university students. And this university has been silent about it. I've been tear gassed and I've experienced the pain of like seeing my friends being just targeted, arrested by the police for speaking out against police brutality. And the thing that sucks is that it's you really like start to think like when does it stop i came here as under um a scholarship program um where you know i was able to build a connection with a diverse group of people but as soon as we were um released into this university um it really just shows how we were just tokens and just they just use us for our face to put on their pictures to say that they're being diverse when they actually have absolutely zero inclination to um, act upon that. How is it that this this past summer, um, Wisconsin Black Student Union met with Chancellor Blank and went through their four demands, one of them including the 13 demands from the 1969 strike and she immediately just shot them down, just ignored every single one of the demands. She did the same with us in the BIPOC coalition and it took us months to get a meeting with her. So I think I share that where it's a fight and it's still a fight and I don't necessarily 
know when the fight ends, but I know that all of us are making a difference and making it better. Thank you so much. Um, I definitely, you know, from both of your experiences and as a minority student myself, I certainly understand the struggle and sometimes we face inequalities, you know, not because we don't have uh, enough abilities, but because of, you know, we have a different color of skins. So um, both of you guys uh, have addressed uh, you know, police treatment to Black people or people of color. And Harvey, earlier you mentioned that in the pro in the protests you were attacked by the police. So regarding police brutality against African Americans and the different treatment between uh, white people and the people of color when it comes to policing, many activists believe in defunding the police, meaning that you know we should reduce the Police budgets in general to invest in other social benefit programs such as healthcare or public education, etc. Do you think this will help reduce police brutality? Or, in your opinion, what are the implications of uh, this defunding the police movement? You know, there are a few things that, that need to take place. A lot of the police officers are frustrated people that have issues. Some of them are so unwilling to even discuss it. I happen to sit on the Mayor's Council on Race Relations, the Commission on Race in Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, now, today. And we look at some of the various factors. You know, we've had people from our committee to go to the police academy and watch them train. And most of what they try to tell the police is, how to defend yourself for them to go home at night, not to de-escalate, but the aggression gives them a better opportunity to have the upper hand. So I don't think until we address the mental health, that's a bad problem in this United States of America, to make it acceptable to go forward and say, I'm having a problem. If you look at the abuse, the physical abuse, a lot of the officers have at home. Are we cultivating criminals? What are we doing? Are they prepared to go into a mental health situation? Look at the number of people that have been killed by the police officers who are simply having a mental health issue. If you take the funding and probably get some people who can go in and de-escalate, find out what's going on. One time while I was in Madison, my girlfriend at the time had a big Afro, light skin with big Afro. And I was pulled over by the police and, you know, one o'clock in the morning, dropped one of my friends off. They want to know, where is Angela Davis? I never met Angela Davis to this day, but they took me off the road and roughed me up in the snow, trying to make me tell where Angela Davis is. And finally got frustrated to the point, I just said to them, just kill me. And they let me go. But that's that inflicting power that people think is the right way to police. Policemen started, most of them started as slave catchers. Ooh, what are they raised to do? Ooh, we were always assigned as a people who were out in the wrong place. So we trained policemen to still be slave catchers. Not right. It's a problem. 
funding the police properly. And, you know, we need the police to do some things, but there needs to be better enforcement and discipline of the policemen. There needs to be some sensitivity training. There needs to be a historical perspective of the education, the amount of drug abuse that exists, the mental health issues that are in the community, the fact that people are hungry. And when you find a wounded animal that doesn't know how to take care of its young, it's one of the most dangerous animals on this earth. And I believe there are a lot of poor people trying to survive who end up looking like criminals. So all of that affects the funding through the police, not exclusively, but it through the police to try to get better education, training, sensitivity, understanding, caring. Most of them don't even speak to you. They don't even just say hello. They walk by with an attitude. So how do we get people to open up their heart? Mental health, unfounded, undiscussed, unidentified mental health issues not only for the community, but because of the community that they're in, that you have a lot of people in the community with mental health issues and the police with mental health issues. Put the two together and pow, wow, what a disaster. It's not working. Thank you. Juliana, as a BIPOC coalition founder, you know, after hearing Harvey's experiences and thoughts on this, on this uh, police reform topic, how do you think the students and the UW community together can push for police reforms, namely the UWPD and Madison Police Department, the MPD? Yeah, this past weekend, so March 6th, marked six years since Tony Terrell Robinson was murdered by um, Madison Police Officer Matt Kenny a man that the city of Madison still employs and is training other officers. Six years ago, Tony Robinson was a 19-year-old Madison native that was in his home experiencing a mental health crisis. And when he called 911 for help, Matt Kenny showed up instead, not a mental health provider, We do know that Tony had his hands up and the first bullet went through his hand and the next through his shoulder and the next through his neck. So that shows how a a person in Madison, when he had his hands up, like, don't shoot. That's why we say that, because he didn't deserve to die that day. Kind of relating this to UW, nine out of 10 calls to UWPD are mental health related. And we need to be answering the call of mental health on this campus. This past year, the UW-Madison BIPOC Coalition conducted a survey um, after our chancellor said that she has heard no negative experiences with UWPD. And we found um, just testimonies that I personally broke down crying on, um, testimonies that really like hit hard for um, people of color, especially. Um, And while I won't go into like the exact specifics of said testimonies, we found that um, most of the negative experiences included calls on like mental health crises, sexual assault and substance abuse. And let's be real, these students were also people of color. 
people have called UWPD about like hate crimes that they actually like refuse to respond to. There was a black Jeep this past year, like literally trailing black students, throwing things at them and spewing like racist words at them, racial slurs at them. And UWPD did nothing. And the thing is, is that there's an article that just that was just published by the University um, Public History Project that shows that the issues with UWPD goes back to its founding all the way back in like the 1930s. So this issue has persisted literally from its inception to what is that? Nine, 90 years later, we've had UWPD for 90 years and these issues are still there. We do need to defund the police. We do need to um, look into the alternatives for policing, including the CAHOOTS model that the BIPOC Coalition has been the direct sponsor and like author of that passed in ASM, which will connect students to mental health providers instead of having a police officer respond to those calls. At the end of the day, we seriously need to just reckon with like our racist history and our history of police brutality and really meeting community demands for defunding the police. Thank you. You know, both of you have addressed some of the main issues that are happening right now, you know, including the police accountability issue, right? How can we hold these police officers accountable for what they have done? So before we wrap up, what advice would you give current and future students in battling the issue of systematic racism? My advice is like, let's stay in this, let's stay in the fight. Um, we, I know it's like tough to continue pushing for it. And I don't want to leave this podcast without mentioning to the Student Inclusion Coalition, like last year, pushed to have honorary degrees for the four university students that were expelled from UW-Madison during the 1969 strike. And the university like ha- has refused that demand to give them honorary degrees and have since still really not met the 13 demands of the 1969 strike. So if this university wants to do anything, then how about we meet the demands made 50 years ago? For students, and especially BIPOC students, I know it's like, tough but we like are building community and just like we will stay in this community and we'll fight against it together so stay in it well you know it's a continuum the battle is not over so when do you stop fighting when the battle is over if you're playing a game you're playing sports you're doing whatever you're doing until it's over it's not over and you must persist and look at examine read and share and gather together people who have uh, similar outcomes, desired outcomes for equality. And let everybody know that this is all of our homes. This is where we live. This is what we do. We're not foreigners. This is our home. And that we live here and we will fight to make it better, not just for your own selfish self. You know, I I am married, I have children, I have grandchildren, they're gonna have children. And I'm embarrassed often when I see them going through some things. You know, they just had a black kid got shot with BB guns 
and forced to drink urine, a middle school kid. How much worse could it be? They killed some of them. That's how much worse. And if you're gonna quit on those kids, you need to not be around. It requires a fight to be humane as part of your humanity, to protect your children and your grandchildren and your nieces and nephews and protect your village and to make it a better world. I'm reminded every day that you must put forward the fight to make this place better. UW, Wisconsin, this country, this world. But if we don't take care of our home, what are you gonna take care of? You know, hearing all this experiences, this meaningful dialogue, I just want to say thank you. Thank you both so much for taking the time to come to our show. And I have really learned a lot today in terms of, you know, student activism, what we can do to make, like Harvey just said, to make this, to make UW and to make the society in general uh, a better place for all of us to live in. Thank you so much for listening in today. Please stay tuned for more episodes. At the same time, please feel free to browse our website, badgerherald.com, for articles written by the Badger Herald staff and other amazing writers, especially the featured article on this topic for more information. If you have any questions, thoughts, or comments, please contact podcast at badgerherald.com. Till next time.